This podcast is made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we're talking theatre of the absurd, absurdism, absurdist theatre. This is one of my favourite theatre styles. I loved it in high school, studied it at uni and introduced it across middle and senior years at school from grade 5 to VCE. The info I am discussing today comes from a variety of sources, including the incredibly helpful website, The Drama Teacher, Crash Course Theatre History, and a number of theatre books like The Concise History of Theatre and Theatre, A History. We will start with some basic history, talk conventions, some key players, and then discuss things I do in the classroom for exploring this wonderful style. Let's get to it. First things first, the word absurd in this context does not mean crazy, silly, outrageous or odd in the same way we would usually use the word. Absurdism was actually first shown to theatregoers in the 1950s and it was like nothing they had ever seen. Absurdism means out of harmony. In Martin Eslin's essay on the topic of absurdism, it defines absurd as out of harmony with reason or propriety, incongruous, unreasonable, illogical. Martin Eslin's essay on the topic was where the term absurdism was first coined. Second thing second, absurd theatre was not a conscious movement spearheaded by one clear director or creative. It was defined after its end by those outside the form. It did occur in Europe in the 1950s and onwards by a number of playwrights. The number of absurdist playwrights changes based on your definition of the style, but most would agree that Samuel Beckett, Eugene Ionesco, Jean Genet and some of Howard Pinterin's Tom Stoppard's work counts as absurdism. There's also an Australian play called Mr. Melancholy by Matt Cameron, suggested by the drama teacher. This is a play I have not read, but it sounds terrifically absurd and in the style of Waiting for Godot. Third thing third. Absurdism has at its core, or at least playing in the background, the theme of existentialism. This is the basic idea that life has no meaning or purpose on its own, that we must find our own meaning. The myth of Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill each day only to see it roll back down again. It is each individual person's job to find meaning themselves, rather than hope to have it given to them from on high. Absurdist playwrights were inspired by existentialism and of course the atrocities of World War II. Samuel Beckett was a member of the French Resistance. He barely escaped the Gestapo and saw many of his friends sent to famous camps, never to return. It is through his plays that we see the existential philosophy play out. Characters exist in closed loops and cannot escape. Here you may think that his plays are depressive, but he actually wishes for his audience to pursue the opposite idea. He presented cyclical and trapped characters and hoped audiences would see this and try to escape the same fate for themselves, a reflective form of theatre that presented a world that was to be avoided rather than mirrored. Okay, so absurdism doesn't mean nonsense, it is inspired by existentialism and it was not a conscious movement. So, what links these playwrights? The issue with a movement that is not intentionally created is that it has some inconsistencies and even contradictions. Samuel Beckett's plays are wildly different. A quad, a short play with four actors moving in rehearsed repeated patterns identified with colour and music, is very different to the sweeping tale of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Tom Stoppard, so I'll try to discuss only conventions that are present in a number of plays. But also worth mentioning that inconsistencies happens across all theatre styles. Brecht's work at the start of his career totally different to the work of Brecht at the end of his career. Okay, so what links these absurdist plays? Well, broad brushstrokes here, but they definitely went against conventional realistic acting conventions. As I mentioned before, these plays are like nothing audiences had seen before. 
The characters, cyclical stories and lack of character motivation was disconcerting and strange for modern audiences at the time. The plays had a mix of realistic and presentational acting, even stereotypical acting. Purposelessness was at the core of many of the characters, a lack or perceived lack of purpose in their day-to-day lives. This could manifest itself in a variety of ways in performance, from clowning to realistic monologues or scenes. They had non-linear plot developments, with some plays ending where they began, with no clear plot at all. With closer inspection and reflection, it's often clear what the plays really mean, but they may not appear to have a plot or a story, and this may include a deliberate lack of conflict, even set in no particular time and place where day and night may even be in question. Vivian Mercier says of Waiting for Gotto in 1956, A play in which nothing happens that keeps audiences glued to their seats. What's more, since the second act is subtly different reprise of the first, he has written a play in which nothing happens. Twice. Time and place and identity are frequently blurred, with characters often unsure about who and where they are. Characters are often out of harmony or out of sync with the world in which they live. Who am I? Where am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? These are all great questions for our times and for the characters in these plays. These plays could be manic and have ritualistic movement, repetitive actions, illogical gestures or movements. The space, the acting, the expressive skills could be used in illogical ways, often switching from one extreme to another, subtle nuance to over-exaggerated comic movement, and they were funny too, and sometimes not at all. And although some plays had no dialogue at all, the spoken word of characters mirrors the other characteristics of the form. Silence was used frequently, or slow, repetitive dialogue. Just like in Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, language was not to be trusted as it can be misinterpreted. So cliched or rhythmical or monotone dialogue is frequently found. Illogical speech patterns going from one extreme to another. So although the style itself may be full of contradictions or inconsistencies, it is the point of the style. We are supposed to reflect on the work we're watching or the work we're creating. Eliminating the contradictions in our own performance lessens the intended effect of the work. We are supposed to be confused. We are supposed to question, to come to our own conclusions about the apparent pointlessness of existence. This is why the production areas of costume, set, lighting are quite simple. Not only does this reflect the isolated, bare world the characters inhabit, it also puts the focus onto the actors and the story. Although again, this isn't always the case, but frequently is. So here we have this nuanced yet cliched theatre style steeped in philosophy and inspired by the atrocities of war. It may seem hard to get students to engage in this work, but once I explore the ideas behind the style, I find the students engage with ease across year levels. Some things I have done in the classroom. I use a redaction model of theatre style understanding combined with script analysis and videos. So what does that look like? I focus on Samuel Beckett's short pieces as an introduction to the style. Come and go. A short cyclical play with three actors, very repetitive and cyclical with interlocking gestures at the end to mirror the themes of the short play. The dialogue is called bare and bleak in the extreme. In an analysis by Gay Macaulay, it centres on three women sitting alone on a bench, remembering their past, conversing almost inaudibly, hats shadow their faces as they move in rhythm throughout the piece. With few lines and simple blocking, this play is easily understood simply by all age groups. Themes of waiting, friendship, gossip, memory, and death are explored. This whole play can be introduced, examined, explored, rehearsed, and shown in a double period, depending on how many students you have, of course. I do this with my grade 5 sixes in a double, and I'm often pleased with the results. Like the other plays explored, it is not until the plays are performed that the understanding comes. They need to be viewed, presented, and reflected on. 
you can watch Come and Go on YouTube. It is easily found, but I'll put a link in the description. Quad. I discussed this play before. It really is a play for film or TV, so you can find it easily on YouTube. Just search Quad Samuel Beckett or find a link in the description. This one is fun to explore in terms of understanding stage movement and blocking. I show the video and task the class with working out the blocking for the play. At first it appears to be difficult to ascertain how these figures move through the space, but the class eventually gets onto the repeated pattern, including avoiding the centre dot. All actors doing the same movement. I ask them to recreate the movement in groups of four or three or two, depending on your numbers. This can take a while, but it's a great way for students to work collaboratively in groups. This play also asks a lot of questions. Why are all the characters different colours? What do we notice about the sound that accompanies each character? Why do they appear and disappear? Why do they avoid the centre dot? What does it tell us about human nature? What does it say about how humans should interact? Are the characters aware of each other? It is both at once a play about how together we create beautiful musical patterns and how we can live our lives with our heads in the ground, unaware of our potential to collaborate and live fuller lives. Act Without Words 1. This is often the very first play I introduce. I tell the class this play uses symbol in every production area, every moment. I split the class into groups. One group focuses on costume, one on set, one on acting, one on sound and light, one on props, and one final group looks at all elements together. And I ask them to brainstorm as they watch the symbol for each of these elements. I ask the questions. What does this play mean? What's going on? It centres on an unnamed figure alone in the heat trying to escape, but unable to leave. All efforts to obtain drink, shelter, or exit are abstracted by an unseen force. By the end, even when offered salvation, it is ignored. Such is the character's lot. This play oozes absurdism, and it's a great place to start. These three plays are all very short and easy to digest. When you show the students the scripts, they will see a range of specificity that Beckett gives his plays. He can give a range of stagecraft information, almost as if it's realism, almost as if every single thing on the stage matters. He wants things to be done a certain way. Here's an excerpt of the stage directions for a piece of monologue. Curtain. Faint, diffuse light. Speaker stands well off-centre, downstage, audience left. White hair, white nightgown, white socks. Two metres to his left, same level, same height, standard lamp. Skull-sized white globe, faintly lit. Just a visible extreme right, same level, white foot on pallet bed. Ten seconds before speech begins. Thirty seconds before end of speech, lamplight begins to fail. Lamp out, silence, speaker, globe, foot of pallet, barely visible and diffuse light. Ten seconds. Curtain. Jeez, even the stage directions are existential. Now, I have used excerpts from Waiting for Godot, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, The Chairs, Rhinoceros and The Lesson, but the longer they are, the longer it takes to dissect. I mentioned the redaction method before, and that is when each small group is given one short play to read or watch, and they go through a list of conventions that appear in absurdist works, and black out any that do not appear in the play they are watching or reading. This provides students with an easily visible list of conventions appropriate for their own play. Now, some say absurdism is hard for students to relate to, but the great thing about it is that these plays rarely rely on historical context for understanding, and are relevant in an instant to the reader, as they are taking place in no particular time and place. No need to understand Scandinavian class system, German war politics, or intricate Japanese symbology, or of course the ravings of the Dadaists. Teens get it. God is dead. Life is pointless. Find your own path. To quote the opening of a piece of monologue by Samuel Beckett, 
Birth was the death of him. Again. Words are few. Dying too. Birth was the death of him. In just one line of script, you have absurdism in a nutshell. Existential, cyclical, repetitive, cliched, and real. Absurdism. That is all from us at The Aside. You can find links to the different websites I used for this episode in the episode description. There are a load of episodes in the bank, so please feel free to go through those and find one that piques your interest. If you would like to ask us a question or you have a suggestion for a future episode, please do not hesitate to contact us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Thank you to Eltham College for letting us record here. Thank you to Aaron Searle for providing the music. Thank you to Drama Victoria for their ongoing support. And of course, thank you for listening.